Dr. David White, Fair State University for CRIM 411, Crime Control Policy. In this episode, I'm going over Chapter 3 of our textbook, Sense and Nonsense, about crime, drugs, and communities by Samuel Walker. And in this lesson, again, Chapter 3, we're talking about the going rate. What is the going rate? Walker defines the going rate as the standard uh, and predictable punishment for particular crime. He points to several important questions here at the outset of the chapter, uh, including what does, uh, uh, what does the criminal justice system do? Basically, what does uh, the daily experience look like? Right? How does the criminal justice system work on a daily basis, that is? How effectively does it control crime? Is it successful at catching, prosecuting, and punishing dangerous criminals? And is it fair, or are there patterns of racial discrimination? As Walker points out here and elsewhere in the text, answering these questions, of course, uh, uh, can clearly be difficult. And he points out that in many cases, we simply do not have good data. He uses an example, the national uh, controversy over racial profiling and traffic stops, what's commonly referred to as driving while black, or DWB. And this concern attracted a significant amount of research attention, actually, in the early 2000s. But Walker points out that it exposed an embarrassing fact that we uh, don't have uh, systematic data on traffic enforcement, on who gets stopped and what happens to them. Even today, there remains debate about whether uh, there is racial and ethnic disparity uh, and to what extent in, uh, in uh, discrimination and traffic enforcement. And so uh, that's sort of how he opens the chapter here. And he talks about the criminal justice funnel when we're trying to sort of conceptualize how the system, uh, criminal justice system works uh, from the number of actual crimes that occur to the number of crimes that get reported to the police, to enforcement action, the actions by the court, the actual imprisonment. We see similar to the earlier wedding cake analogy that we've already used, um, it helps to sort of picture a funnel whereby we see a number of those arrested uh, for offenses is reduced as we look then at those who are actually prosecuted. Uh, the textbook shows that 27% uh, of those arrested, uh, those cases were dismissed, resulting uh, in a prosecution rate of about 73% uh, for those folks arrested. About half then plead guilty, that's 48%. And when we look uh, just at felony charges, we see, of course, that the numbers are much smaller than misdemeanor cases overall. Uh, one estimate given the textbook is that 68% of felony arrests presented the prosecutor by police ended in a conviction, with 56% uh, being for felony charges and another 11% convicted or pled guilty to lesser offenses, to misdemeanor charges. These numbers of convictions are fairly consistent across serious felony types. Uh, for example, murder at about 70%, rapes at about 68%, and robberies at uh, 66%. Uh, from the court stage of conviction, what happens to convicted felons? Well, uh, the text tells us about 73% are incarcerated, 36% went to prison, uh, whereas 37% went to jail. Walker points out that people trying to portray the system as, quote, soft on crime, uh, point just to the prison statistics and often ignore the fact 
um, that a lot of the folks go to jail, and so the, they ignore the percentage that go to jail. We take a look, a closer look at the funnel. Once, uh, once a case is presented by the police, it can either uh, be rejected by the prosecutor or dismissed by the judge. This generally occurs when the evidence is weak and uh, there appears to be a lack of probable cause to support the stated charge. The lack of evidence, as the textbook shows, is the primary reason here uh, following, uh, or followed by the lack of witnesses, uh, to which uh, uh, we again relate back to a lack of evidence that lead to dismissals. And so when we see uh, the term dismissal, uh, they assume that the case, the charges, are simply dropped against the defendant, but that's not always true either. The text shows us that uh, these dismissals often involve the case getting diverted. That's about 11% of cases get diverted. 27% get referred for other prosecution. That is other charges uh, uh, or a change in the charges of the types of offenses. Uh, and about 10% of them uh, are where charges are combined. So the officer is charged more things those charges just sort of get combined into one single charge. As Walker reinforces here, this is not a sign of a weak system of justice, but perhaps a realistic version of how the system should work. He says that this is representative of the high degree of screening that occurs as cases flow through the system uh, from the arrest to the final prosecution. This is affirmed by the fact that 95% uh, of cases end in a guilty plea. Uh, um, and weak cases get screened out, and that's why. That's why such a high percentage of cases, the defendants actually go ahead and just plead guilty. They don't even take it to trial. We look at sentencing. Um, uh, Walker says the going rate gets tougher. There's an estimated 2.2 million people incarcerated as of 2012. Uh, America has the highest incarceration rate in the world. Sentencing is, however, a uh, multi-dimensional complex subject according to Walker. So the, the decisions here, uh, one, uh, the decision is to send someone to prison um, in a conviction or uh, um, we should also look at the length of time they serve. And so two different uh, decisions here to be made, sending them to prison and the length of uh, the prison sentence. Walker points to the reform in sentencing is one of the primary reasons uh, for the enormous growth in the prison population, primarily because of mandatory minimum sentencing laws. He addresses that on page 66. Uh, other ad adaptations here have included truth in sentencing laws um, that require prisoners to serve at least X percent, usually 85 percent, 85 percent rule adopted in 1994 for federal courts and prisons. According to Walker, uh, it, it was adopted also by 35 states as of 2008. The average time served by prisoners in 2009 was 36% higher than it was in 1990. Walker talks about the courtroom work group, which of course you've heard before, but uh, very important here to the idea of the going rate. So uh, again, we've talked about this uh, briefly, about the power of the courtroom work group to shape uh, how the courtroom actually works. Uh, to set up the going rate and so forth, but Walker brings it up again in this chapter. He points out that while we think uh, of, about a rather detached system, uh, really there's just a series of people uh, who each have certain amounts of discretionary power to work within organized framework of the law. 
uh, to process cases, prosecutors, defense attorneys, judges, and to a lesser extent, the, the police also make up part of this courtroom work group. Um, in their decision-making, there must be some level of consensus concerning what's reasonable in decisions such as the bail amount, plea agreements, and so forth. Uh, if there are decisions made by one party or the other that seems to violate these sort of informal expectations about that going rate, they're more likely to be challenged. In this way, uh, quote here, the conflict between prosecutor and defense is the exception rather than the rule in the U.S. criminal justice system. That is to say, uh, we think about uh, the system as being adversarial or inquisitorial, uh, but in reality, uh, there is uh, not that much adversarial action going on. Again, only about 5% of cases go to trial. Uh, and so instead, Walker claims uh, that we have an administrative system of justice rather than uh, adversarial, uh, where there are, quote, uh, there's no public clash between prosecutor and defense. He says the courtroom work group uh, has enormous power uh, to limit, frustrate, or even block reforms, too, uh, in the justice system. And so much broader impact there, not just in their own courtroom, but to sort of uh, block or interfere with uh, attempts to change the overall justice system. So we give several examples here. Uh, in the case of N. Ray Galt, uh, uh, a 1967 case establishing the right of juvenile defendants to have counsel, very important case as far as uh, uh, Supreme Court decisions go. Uh, uh, but a 1984 study in Minnesota sort of following up here on this issue, found that only about half, that is about 47% of kids in juvenile court actually had legal counsel, and that's uh, almost 20 years after N. Ray Galt. 1963 case of Gideon versus Wainwright, uh, again, very uh, well-known case, ruled that adult defendants have the right to counsel. However, studies of public defender's offices have demonstrated that they are often overwhelmed by caseloads and lack of resources in such a way that it makes it difficult for them to provide meaningful representation to their clients. Uh, though many states have passed the three strike laws, uh, three strikes and you're out, very popular in the 1990s, uh, whereby we uh, take convicted felons, uh, three felonies, uh, you get much longer sentences. But Walker shows aside from uh, California, many state prosecutors elsewhere did not use the law. In Wisconsin, for example, um, they had not used it but once in a year and a half period. And five other states had never applied their state law. Furthermore, 8,381 inmates, he says, serving three strike sentences in California in 2018, 37% of those were in LA County alone. Uh, the idea there being that most counties in California were probably not applying that law. He's saying that it was overly applied in particular counties within a very large state. Point here is, is simply passing a law does not guarantee that it's gonna be used or used in a consistent manner uh, from state to state, and for that matter, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And so what he points out is that uh, while wide sweeping changes are frequently attempted in our criminal justice approach, uh, uh, a better approach is perhaps uh, that those that uh, only require 
sort of slight modifications to the routines and to the going rate of these folks working in criminal justice that's more likely to take hold, more likely to get them to move. And so where politicians sort of make these sweeping changes and uh, try to overhaul criminal justice, well, it's met with the fury of the courtroom work group who figures out ways of working around it. And so instead he's, of course, advocating here for minor modifications over time. That way, more likely to get more people on board. He talks about and takes up wrongful convictions, and so looking at how common a mistake they are. And so he says an inevitable part of managing criminal justice cases is simply that mistakes will be made, and there will be some innocent people who are caught up in wrongful convictions. We, of course, idealistically would like to think that that would not happen at all, but realistically what uh, we should concentrate on is how to minimize this issue. So the administration of justice is a human process, he says, uh, involving uh, day in and day out decisions by members of the courtroom work group. Uh, and as such, it's inevitable that some mistakes are going to occur. These mistakes are, uh, in many cases, because of negligence, incompetence, or bias. Uh, but how often are they actually occurring? Well, it only points to the Innocence Project, pretty well known uh, idea that was established in 1992 in New York City work to overturn wrongful convictions. By 2012, 302 convicted offenders had been exonerated or released as part of that project. And so uh, these are the results of DNA-related issues, and a, a study of cases showed 72% of those uh, exonerations involved bad witness testimony, 50% involved improper or invalid forensic evidence, and 25% uh, involved a false confession. 18% involved false or incorrect information from informants. And so these wrongful co convictions disproportionately uh, uh, also affected minorities. And so 62%, uh, he tells us, of the defendants being black. The estimates given by Walker uh, tend to point towards about a 1% error in felony prosecutions, uh, which sounds like it's not too bad, but consider that a 1% error uh, of margin here would result in about 6,000 people a year being wrongfully convicted on a felony. That's pretty bad. Uh, so we're uh, hoping that it's something much less than 1%, but he tells us that uh, uh, it's estimated at 1%. These numbers, according to Walker, may be higher for sexual assaults and for murders, uh, an estimation between 5.3 and 7.8%, where sentences and therefore the consequences of error are the highest. And so this issue uh, generally demonstrates sort of that moral imperative for criminal justice agents to do their jobs faithfully and competently. In conclusion, Walker reinforces uh, that there is, quote, the going rate, for crime in the U.S. and based on the seriousness of crime and on the person's prior record, we can predict with a high degree of accuracy the outcome of their case. Walker claims the going rate has become uh, much harsher over the last uh, four decades and overall the process of justice and how the system works is much different than what most people think and the uh, stability and power of the courtroom work group makes it difficult to implement changes. Uh, this group wields tremendous power uh, to uh, adapt 
and either ignore or evade the intent of new public policies. And so the idea, again, of this courtroom work group is an important one for you to understand and sort of get a hold of, and that is that uh, in each jurisdiction and even within these other professions like uh, uh, the prosecutors' associations, defense attorney associations, um, these folks, they work at, at not only their local level but at state levels with their state associations uh, and at national levels, and they have policy-level influence. And so, uh, so all the same, very important for us to recognize when we're thinking about how public policy actually works in practice. Uh, hope that was helpful for you. Again, uh, make sure you look over the entire chapter. All the content that I cover here today is also available in print on our course homepage, and so you can check it out there as well. As always, if you have questions, feel free to email them to me.